15 minutes later the phone rings again. I said, oh, it's Nick, FaceTime. Except when the picture came up that it wasn't Nick, it was his other friend. Um, I go, oh, what's, where's Nick? And he goes, oh, and then he turned the phone around and Nick's head was over the basin in his room and it was, he was pouring blood out of his nose. It was torrential. I said, okay, we've, we've got a problem. The of the child, it's okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Life's journey is always an interesting one. You never quite know when things can go topsy-turvy and even the best laid plans don't always go as expected. If you live in a largely populated area, like a major city or regional area, and you have a health emergency, you can draw comfort that there will be an ambulance close by that will be able to get you to hospital and that they will have all the skill, equipment and care to save your life. But what if you are in remote Northern Territory and hundreds of kilometres from the closest hospital and it's a late Saturday night and you have an unexpected life-threatening hemorrhage. There is no ambulance and the closest hospital is hours away. Worse still, what if you were the parents of a young adult who has a bleed that just won't stop and you are thousands of kilometres away and the phone connection to your son is just so dodgy you end up pacing the room for hours hoping your son is still alive. That is exactly what happened to Chris and Betty Katsuginis when their son Nicholas ended up in a life-threatening situation. Hello, Betty and Chris. Good afternoon. So you've been living here on this glorious property, Barnsdale, on the Southern Tablelands for almost 20 years, right? Um, since December 2006. Yeah, that's a fair while. Yeah. Yeah, and you raised a family here? We did. We raised our two children here. We moved from Orange to Barnsdale Gundaroo uh, and one was about seven and the other one was turning 12. Did they enjoy yeah, that rural upbringing? Because it's quite quite a unique thing to grow up on a farm. Well, they, they did and certainly uh, Nicholas, who was born in Orange and Athena, when the time came to leave Orange to come to Gundaroo uh, when the question was put to the family do you want to move into a city or a country place and the, their, their response was another question which was uh, what do we do with all the animals and I said well if we move into the city we have to sell the animals so the decision was pretty quick no we're not selling the animals you'll have to find another farm so we were lucky enough to find Barnsdale and here we are. Fabulous. That's great. Do you think that Nick's love for working in the outback comes from that upbringing or has he been influenced by other experiences as well? 
Oh, he was, I think that we all would joke with Nicholas about how the dust is in his blood. Uh, he always wanted, you know, he's always grown up uh, helping on the farm. Uh, both kids were growing up helping on the farm, pony, doing the pony club thing, uh, helping in the cow yards, sheep yards, helping on the, you know, doing things on the farm, getting dirty, you know, riding motorbikes and ponies. So, yeah, I, I think there was, he'd always made his mind up that at some point, uh, when he's old enough that he'll go and do a jackaroo stint somewhere in Australia, yeah. uh, which is where it led, it to, led him to uh, earlier this year. And so where is he currently located? Uh, so he's on a, play, a station called Amunji Munji Station, um, which is about three or 400 kilometres southeast of uh, Catherine. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we found out recently, a nine and a bit dry, hour drive from Darwin. Um, on a fairly large station where they run Brahman cattle um, and he's having a great time. Um, but, you know, he's, he's really enjoying it. It's, it's been a dream of his to, to work on a, a station and the opportunity came up and he, he's grabbed it by the horns, pardon the pun. <laughs> and how old is he now? Just turned 23 because we went and visited him for his birthday. So right. uh, he's just turned 23. I guess what this uh, story, why this story has particularly interested me was because Nick had um, some surgery earlier this year. What was the surgery to resolve? Uh, so he'd always been a prolific snorer at home and mouth breather and the long and the short of it was just about three weeks before he was touted to go up to the station, uh, a colleague, a friend of mine said, look, you know, we'll get those uh, tonsils. He'll have a look at his tonsils. I said, come in, come in we'll, we'll do them quickly with, with my friend who's an ENT surgeon in Sydney. Um, and he was finishing up his carpentry apprenticeship and probably a little bit short of three weeks. And he had them done in Sydney. There was, uh, he had his tonsils, his adenoids and his turbinates done, which are the curly bits inside your nose to help him with his snoring. And um, there was a small immediate post-operative bleed uh, where he had to go back into theatres from recovery, but after that he was fine and uh, ready to go. Um, now, you're, you're a doctor, Chris, right? You're mm. an ED. Uh, well, I started out as a rehab physician and lately I've been doing rural and remote fellowship with the College mm. of Rural and Remote Medicine and uh, part of that work is doing ED. And part of that work also this year has been doing some work with Royal Flying Doctors out at uh, Broken Hill in their primary care section. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of had a bit of an understanding of what was going on with Nicholas uh, when he, before he left hmm. um, and then and during his little uh, story. So then let's, would you mind explaining from a medical or clinical perspective if you have a post-operative bleed, what does that mean? So he's had this surgery, you know, in his nasal and respiratory yeah. um, airways. What, what, what does it mean when you've got a post-operative bleed? So there is a small chance, uh, and they, this was also explained to him by his surgeon, that uh, probably in the first 7 to 14 days there's a small chance you might get a bleed. It's a bit like the scab falling off a, an operative wound. It might re-bleed again. Because he had all three things done, tonsils, adenoids and turbinates, and, uh, and there was a little bit of bleeding in the back part, uh, they had to take him back in the first half an hour and they cauterised it um, and then it would all settle down. So, uh, in fact, his surgeon said, oh, I would, li- would have liked to see you 
one more time before you go up to the Northern Territory within sort of that three-week period. It's not a common occurrence to have a, a post-operative bleed. In Nicholas's case, uh, it was unusual, usually a bit late, but it can happen. Mm. And what it means is basically, you, you know, he's either, if it's posterior, which is very difficult to access, and the story will pan and explain that out, and then if it's an anterior bleed, which are most bleeds, most nosebleeds are anterior, in other words, in the front part of your nose, so you can put a bit right. of pressure on them. You can pack them. No, you stick some tissue yeah, up or you exactly. hold, you pinch the top them. of your nose or something and it stops it. Exactly. So, but the ones that are more posterior, right at the back, are very difficult to get because you can't put packing down there very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, so if they do bleed, you can run into real problems. You know, fortunately, Nicholas is a young, healthy uh, fellow, uh, but it can be quite dangerous in older, frail people or people on blood thinners where the bleeding can be quite torrential. Mm. Uh, and can, can turn into quite life-threatening uh, hemorrhage. Mm. So he um, was three or so weeks out from heading to this remote station and were there specific instructions that um, his surgeon gave him about post-operative care, were the things he shouldn't do? Yeah. I presume, you know, scuba diving or something would not be on the list, but, you know. He had a daily wash, didn't he? He, was doing he had a, the flow wash. Um, daily he said if he keeps it up he should be fine before he set off to go to the north he was given um, the clear that everything was resolving really really well and he was healing well but he did have to keep up his daily washes which was the flow wash so literally he's squirting a whole he's got this little bottle yeah and he's squirting saline up his nose and washing it out two or three times a day yes um just to keep it clear and get rid of all you know crust and whatever else builds up after the surgery yeah and he was doing that pretty religiously because he didn't want to have any issues he was here at home before he left and um he was doing it three four times a day it was clear nothing much Mm. was coming out it it Mm. was pretty much healed and Mm. he was ready pretty much to go but he was going to continue it right through until you know the four week mark so off he went and you're here at home when did you first learn that something wasn't quite right well he would check in on each camp stop so the first one was in Burke and he was fine everything was going well he was driving with another friend he then caught up with other jackaroos going up north so it became a group of people a bit of a caravan or a bit of a convoy yeah, yeah. heading up there so they went from Burke to Mount Isa this is a young man's dream isn't oh, it yeah <laughs> it was yep. February so it was quite warm long hours so they got from Burke to Mount Isa and then from Mount Isa to Barclay Homestead. Mm. So they would stay in camp on each of those stops. And when they got to Barclay Homestead, uh, we got a call fairly late at night mm. and it was very warm. He said it was 44 degrees and it was very warm compared to the climate he was used to. Yeah. He had a swim and... Then he was getting ready to have some dinner, but it was fairly late at night. Can't remember the time. Chris. So there's two phone calls. So there was one where he he, rang, he had to swim, hmm. and he rang me. Well, he FaceTimed me, and he said, "Oh, there's a bit of blood, Dad." And I said, "Well, I did put a first aid kit in the back seat of your car just in case." You know, uh, being a dad and a medical person, I'm a bit paranoid. So I said, "There's a first aid kit. Just pop it, pop it in. Just pack it." 
pivot there for a bit, you know, see how you go. And he rang back and he said, oh, no, it's all good. I've, you know, it's, it's stopped bleeding. Okay. I said, oh, fantastic, Nick. You know, you, you've, I think it was about one more night, 500, 600 Ks from his cattle station. Yeah. So it was the last hurrah. Serious drive. Yeah, really Serious long drives. Drive. He said it was, I think, 40-odd degrees. They went and had a swimming pool. A swim at the local pool in the Barclay Homestead. Now I, we we had no idea where Barclay Homestead is. It sounds like a you know homestead, but we look you know eventually found out it's just a it's a giant truck stop, which is like an intersection for all the freeways from the Northern Territory and Queensland and Adelaide and everywhere else. And then 15 minutes later the phone rings again. I said, oh, it's Nick, FaceTime. Except when the picture came up, it wasn't Nick. It was his other friend, and he said, oh, hi Chris, I'm what I can't remember his name, but Seamus. Seamus. Um, I go, oh, what's, where's Nick? And he goes, oh, and then he turned the phone around and Nick's head was over the basin in, the bar, in his room and it was, he was pouring blood out of his nose. It was torrential. I said, okay, we've, we've got a problem. Um, and he couldn't stop it. So, we, you know, he tried packing it. It was coming down the back of his throat, uh, which always worried me because I go, okay, so, you know, down, generally from a medical perspective, if it's coming down the back of your throat, uh, it's likely to be a posterior bleed. If it's coming from the front of your nose, it's going to be an anterior bleed. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's going to be tricky to stop, but let's see how we go. And it, he packed it, and we just sort of, it wasn't stopping. Even with the packing, he was spitting out a lot of blood. Like, and I think the panic sort of start, started to set in. So we quickly got, you know, got all his mates in the room. They packed his nose. Then we had to figure out who's driving. Meanwhile, Betty and I, while we're trying to talk, I think Betty was trying to figure out where exactly is, what's the nearest hospital. (laughs) I can just immediately put myself in the shoes of the parents who are thousands of kilometres away and trying to figure out, so where where did you work out the closest hospital was? Well, I tried ringing Barclay Homestead and no one was picking up to see if they had a medical kit there. This is late at night, right? Mm. Very late at night. It must have been 10.30 at mm. night. No one was picking up. It is a 24-hour stop, but no answer. Yeah. They do have an airstrip there, but again, I was worried where, you know, what would happen. So I then thought, oh, well, let's see the closest hospital, and it was... Tennant Creek Hospital. Yeah, it's a long way away. Mm. It was. Everything's a long way away. Yeah. (laughs) Everything. So how far is it from Buckley Downs to uh, Tennant Creek? It was over 200 kilometres. Yeah. So it was two hour and a bit drive. So we then had to find the logistics of who was going to drive and who had hardly any beers on board to drive. Right, because they, the young men, they've been drinking. Saturday night. Saturday night. They had a couple of drinks with dinner, and now someone's got to put their hand up to drive. Luckily, one of Nick's good mates uh, was able to drive. And then there was that two-hour blackout period where there's no reception. And, you know, you can imagine two hours, uh, Saturday nights on, on those freeways, there's animals on the road. You, your yeah. brain's thinking, what's going to happen? Is, is he going to be okay? We'd run ahead to Tennant Creek. I was trying to talk to the doctor at Tennant Creek, have, you know, doing, you know, being a helicopter dad, helicopter doctor dad. <laughs> have you got TSA? Have you got adrenaline? Have you got rhino? I, I, I reckon it's pretty good. This? I reckon in a circumstance like that, it's pretty good to have yeah, a helicopter I, dad. I was, <laughs> I was also trying to restrain myself in terms of not, you know, panicking and making sure that, you know, Bea was feeling comfortable and she was ringing her head as well, mm. trying to get... And we gave her hand... I gave her a hand up, so 
I said, you've got a 23-year-old male coming with no known allergies. He's two weeks, two, 18 days post this, this and that. Yeah, he's got and a post-operative no, yep. hemorrhage. And this is what we know. Yeah, so it's, I sort of switched into emergency mode, which was if I'm going to give it, get a, expect a handover, this is what I would expect. Yeah. So that was good for them because that gives them a heads up. There's yeah. a young fella coming in and he's potentially bleeding quite profusely. We need to be ready with this, this and that. And they were lovely. They were fantastic at Tennant Creek. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Now, could I ask, Chris, mm. when somebody is bleeding like that quite profusely for an extended period, he's got to drive for two, two and a half hours to yeah. Tennant Creek on dirt roads. And uh, Anyway, um, what are the symptoms? What happens to a person's body when they start to have that loss of blood? What are mm. the symptoms that occur? It depends on the certain levels of uh, what we call hemorrhage. And, you know, in the early phases, it can be just a raised Heartbeat, you know, your heartbeat goes up, your respiratory might, might go up, you might feel a bit dizzy or clammy. Um, and then you, as you get into more severe levels of hemorrhage, it can become, you know, become quite uh, hypotensive. So your blood pressure drops, you're, you know, you're, you're very pale, uh, your respiratory rate goes up, your, uh, your breathing becomes shallow. Everything sort of seems to shut down right. so that you're basically channeling all your blood to the big organs, your brain, right. your heart and your kidneys. Right. So that's why people get real pale and, and they shut down peripherally and sweaty. So at that point, you know, I just we'd lo- and we'd lost contact. So yeah. So you're sitting here going, his, oh my his gosh. His mate Fletcher was driving, and Nick's obviously sitting in the and he said it in the text. I'm you're about to I'm about to lose you guys. Just hang tight. It was probably the longest couple of hours until we got into reception. My goal, my mind was, I just need to get into Tennant Creek Hospital, where there's at least some emergency care examinations and try and get the right people involved in his in his uh, management thank you for explaining all of mm. that when you finally got that phone contact back mm. that reception back was he at the hospital he was nearly there and the fact that we could talk so i knew he could talk which means he's breathing he's got bright blood going to his brain uh, that's a good sign i was a bit more relieved mm. uh, they finally found their way there and then he said look i'll call you guys um you know, once I get triaged and I, I just needed to get him in there and mm. let them do their job. So I need, that was all we could do mm. is uh, we've given our handover, we prepared them for an incoming patient, uh, which happened to be our son, and I had to let them do their job. And they did it admirably. They were wonderful. The doctors, the nurses, they rang, they kept us updated. By that stage, it was um, probably two in the morning. Um, two, almost two o'clock in the morning. We managed to get to bed. I think I went to bed at about three and then woke up at seven and texted Nick 
to say, you know, has it stopped bleeding? And he said, no, not really. Gosh, so what? So he's now been bleeding since 10 o'clock yeah, at night? Yeah, it slowed down, but it was still bleeding. He said he was still coughing up blood. They put in what we call rapid rhinos, which is basically like two balloons into your nostrils and you blow it up with air to compress right. the nostrils. But because he had a posterior bleed, uh, those things don't reach at the back. Uh, it, it slowed down, but he was still coughing up blood. And they were gonna, there was a changeover at about I think, eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, and so the new day team was coming on and they were gonna try and figure out what to do. So by that stage, I had been, I had, you know, woken up Sunday morning, I contacted my mate who was the anaesthetist who'd done the, the procedure with the ENT guy. I said, mm. oh, John, uh, this is where we're at. You know, remember when he went back to recovery, from recovery with that little bleed? Where was it? He goes, oh, Chris, it's right down the back. They're not going to be able to reach it. It's right down the posterior part. Oh, so, no. oh, okay. So I suspect with the heat and then hopping into the pool, the scab right at the back had come off and that's the one that he, you know, started bleeding again. So it all made sense. And so then we had my anaesthetic friend and his ENT surgeon ringing um, uh, Tennant Creek and just giving their hand over and then there was a period where they finally got it under control. Uh, one of the new, one of the emergency registrars that came on used a couple of other what they call posterior rhino packs which are longer basically. Mm. So there's a balloon at the back and a balloon at the front and they managed to Gosh, poor Nick, yeah. he's got all this... He was exhausted. He's got all this stuff up yeah. his nose and he's just trying, he's coughing up blood. Yeah. The poor kid, I mean... And he, they finally stemmed it and then they had... Well, he wasn't going to wasn't gonna get better there. He needed an operation and so they had to decide uh, where he was going to go. So they had to task it through flying doctors mm. as to who was on call. Would it be Darwin or Adelaide? Mm. So at that point... Um, whilst I was trying to talk to them, I'm telling Betty, just get me on a flight to <laughs> get ready, get me on a flight to somewhere. Yeah. And we uh, finally got the news that he was being transferred to Darwin because uh, the ENT surgeon had accepted him there. So we knew we had a destination, and mm -hmm. then my journey to catch up with him began. So we flew, I flew, I think I left at one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday and flew to Sydney and then from Sydney to Adelaide and then from Adelaide to Darwin. Oh my gosh. And I got there at I think 9.30, uh, maybe longer, I can't remember now. Got there on the, on the Sunday night. So it was a huge long day. And he was tasked as a priority one. So which, which means in RFDS circles is they send a nurse and blood and a doctor on board the plane to pick him up to ten, from Tennant Creek. Hmm. Yeah, so that he had, that was, I already had my, my, my job lined up at Royal Flying Doctors at Broken Hill, so I had an early, early uh, what do you call it, exposure to... Early check-in. Yeah, early check-in. <laughs> um, and at that point, there was also, I mean, if you remember, it was the second wave of COVID happening. Yeah. So beds were premium in all hospitals across Australia, and he was a spillover public patient into the private hospital next door because they had no beds at Dar Royal Darwin. Right. So by the time I arrived, um, and the staff were lovely, they let me in, you know, they'd screen me, they knew I was coming. Yeah, you'd hate to get all that way and then be yeah. told you're not allowed in even though you're a doctor. Well, I, got, I, got, I did get, you know, sort of looked at uh, as I got out of the cab in Darwin and who are you? And the after hours manager came to the door and, you know, where, you know, you had to do the screening, and, which is yeah. fine, completely understandable. And um, so luckily, by the time I got up there, I found him asleep. 
uh, with his two tubes hanging out of his nose and there's still blood crusted on his face, but he was exhausted, but he was fine. He was, he was in a safe place, he was in the right place and uh, we were very grateful that he'd gotten there without too much uh, danger, uh, but it was hairy at certain times. Had he already been in surgery when no. you got there? So he was still waiting for surgery. So was he still bleeding? No, he'd slowed down. So they, they left him in there. They stopped yeah. the bleeding with the posterior pack. So right. it was a, obviously a very experienced registrar who came on on the Sunday morning who was able to put in the bigger, longer posterior packs and that stopped the bleeding. Uh, he didn't, didn't have any more bleeding until he went to theatres on the Monday afternoon. Oh. So they left everything alone. Yeah. And he had to um, basically not eat and drink um, until Monday afternoon for definitive surgery. Um, and definitive surgery is going to be an endoscopic procedure where you basically turn the tap off from a major artery in your nose. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was he out of the danger zone? I mean, he was now, obviously, his nose was packed and the bleeding yeah. had eased, so he was safe, but... What was the fear in terms of, would the surgery potentially yeah. again start more, yeah, so more bleeding? The fear was, as soon as they would take the balloons out, that there would be more torrential bleeding. Our noses are very small spaces, yeah. so you can't really get your hands in there. And trying to do it with an endoscopy, which is a small camera, uh, your field of view can be easily uh, obscured by blood. Right. So but the advantage was he was in a tertiary centre, where they have all the tricks and trades and expertise. Fortunately, it wasn't. So they took the packing out. There was minimal bleeding, and then they went on to do the definitive procedure, which is what they call a uh, sphenopalatine artery ligation. Oh my gosh. So you basically turn off the tap. You clip the artery, which goes to that area, and it's all stopped. That's right. it. And that was it. He was starving by the time he went in uh, on Monday afternoon, but he was, he was safe. Was, how was he doing? Like, how, yeah. was, how was he travelling? Was he... He was exhausted. He was exhausted. Yeah. Was he worried about the bleeding and about... He was um, also worried about, oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to start at Manji Manji Station at, right. you know, later this week. I was, I was supposed to be there yesterday. Yeah. Um, we had... I forgot to mention, we'd already rung his station owner and let them know, listen, Nick's not going to be there t tomorrow on Sunday. Yeah. On Sunday. He's not going to be there today, in fact because this is what's happened and they were very grateful to know that he was okay eventually. So he was all, he was, that was his mind. His mind was like, am I going to be able, do I have to go back home to Gundaroo? <laughs> right. And there were a few unanswered questions because we didn't yeah. know what was going to happen. Yeah. Because it could have been, well, if he has another re-bleed after his operation, a tiny chance, uh, more delays. I had to rejig my calendar and work and rosters, so I took you know, urgent work off from here in Canberra and, but you know, our primary concern was, you know, was Nicholas gonna be okay? And in the end it all panned out, he was, he was, got, he was okay. And then the issue was, well, we'd like to see you again in four days time. Yeah, and they're in, then he has to stay in Darwin. Yeah, so I stayed in Darwin with him and had the most amazing sunsets together with him at the local <laughs> yacht club. I can honestly say that Darwin does have amazing sunsets. So we just stayed and did a father-son few days while he recovered. Yeah. He was out of uh, the hospital on the Tuesday afternoon. Mm. And then he had a review on the Thursday afternoon in clinic. Mm. And they, had, they put the little camera up in the clinic in his nose and they were happy that 
It was day four that the bleeding had stopped. And, and because they'd done that surgery and they'd actually turned off the tap, so to speak, for where it was bleeding, it wasn't just a, you know, sew it up or... No. It was actually a quite significant... Yeah. There's um, always a risk that it can happen again or, you know... You know yeah. This, this, these are delicate areas, um, but less so. Once it's done, it's definitive. Once right. it was success, successful, they were fairly happy. You know, he was seen on a Thursday afternoon... Uh, they said, yep, you can go. We decided uh, you'll go on to go to Manji Manji Station and his station owners were lovely and they said, we'll put him on house duties, which meant he was sweeping floors and I think a decopping wasn't quite the introduction that he was waiting for. No, he wanted to be cattle. Well, was, and in his mind, he was riding horses and rounding up you know, thousands <laughs> of cattle on day one, but in reality, he got there and he was sweeping floors and... Um, decobbing, they gave him, you know, house duties, basically, right. which is fine, which was lovely of them, because it was hard for us to think, oh, you know, I don't want anything to happen yeah. again, but we, I put him on the bus on the Friday morning, on the right. bus at Darwin, and he made it down there, and and, that, and then it was also his car was, you know, I had to pick up his car, so Fletcher Which is still in Tennant Creek. Well, it was, no, Fletcher drove it to... Uh, Daily ta- Waters. To Daily Daily Waters. waters. And then they met his station owner, met him at Daily Waters, picked the, took the car home. Right. And Fletcher went on to his station. Fletcher was going to Kananara. Right. So, uh, yeah, there was lots going on, lots of logistics. And he, you know, two weeks later made his way back up and got the thumbs up from the surgeon and he hasn't looked back. So what sort of stuff does he do on a daily basis now? Is he doing the horses <laughs> and the cattle and the motorbikes and the whole thing? Yeah, I'm not worried about his nose anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's the other stuff that he does. He's decided, you know, he's camp drafting. Uh, he's doing bronc riding and, and bull riding too. Bull so. riding, bronco, uh, buck jump riding, I don't know what, how you call it, but <laughs> whip cracking on a wild bronco and falling off. So he sends us random videos of that. and uh, He's having a great time. He, he's having a great time. <laughs> right, well, the, the major question then really is, you know, is he still snoring? Oh, yeah. Well, I asked him that when we saw him for his birthday. He goes, no, no, it's the best thing I ever did. But his mate, Jock, said, uh, of course he snores. He snores the, the house down. He goes, no, I don't. No, I think it has done the trick. He feels he, he feels he's a lot more refreshed uh, waking up in the mornings. Uh, should have got it done earlier, Dad. And I said, yeah, you should have probably got it done earlier. We left it to the last minute, but it got done. You know, we, we're very grateful to flying doctors who, uh, he, you know, we picked him up and took him from Tennant Creek. And everybody from from Tennant Creek right through to Darwin and afterwards were fantastic. The communication, and you just see that, you know, people who live out there really rely on, you know, flying doctors for that remote service where it's, whether it's retrieval services for emergencies like NICS or primary care services that do clinics out there, it's a lifeline that, you know, that that population really relies on. Um, the funny story was, uh, I think Nick was telling everybody at Tennant Creek, I think obviously I, I, at that point I realised I was going to be okay, was he was sitting there, sitting up and telling everybody, oh yeah, my dad's going to work for Flying Doctors in a, in a few weeks, you know, and, oh wow, and I was saying, oh mate, it's, I think we were too worried about everything else, don't worry about what I'm doing, worry about what you're doing. So it was, uh, it was a, yeah, it was a bit of a raw introduction for both of us, but in the end, uh, Flying Doctors were fantastic. Got to live his dream safely, and he's having a great time. And now you just get to watch these videos, mm. and and you know the adventures are there, and he's being a young man in the Northern Territory. 
It's fabulous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I keep saying, oh, he's going to break something next. It's got to be a broken bone or a shoulder. I've seen a couple of I won't, I won't tell you some horrific stories oh, I've heard. Oh, I'm not going to... No. We've listened yeah. to your podcast, so we probably should stop listening to them because... Uh, <laughs> So there have been some uh, inc- you know, incredible stories. That, that I mean, that's how uh, we sort of got to know what goes on out there. The, well, fingers crossed. Yeah. He'll, be, he'll be fine and he'll just have an absolute blast of a time. Yeah, and, well, he is. And, yeah. He's living, he, whenever you speak to him, it's, how are you, Nick? You know, you're well. I'm living the dream. I'm living the dream. So that's it. Thank you so much for telling us this story. Oh, pleasure. Wish he could have told you it, but the reception out there is pretty poor, so... Uh, yeah, he was happy for us to relay what his versions of the events were um, and thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 8405 7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.